Good morning. All the buttons are pushed, so now we can start. Um, turn over in your Bibles to uh, Malachi. Uh, if you have a hard time finding it, turn to Matthew, first chapter of Matthew. Go back a couple pages. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament and is the last prophet uh, in our series, the last minor prophet in the Old Testament. And so this marks our last sermon in this series as well. Uh, and I hope this series uh, was as eye-opening, challenging, and informative for you as it was for me. There are many profitable teachings found throughout these short books of prophecy. And as I mentioned at the start of this, the only thing minor about these uh, prophets is the length of them. Um, we found a number of profitable teachings that, that point us back to the gospel, that point us to who Jesus is, to who God is, and to better understand our role and our relationship with Him. So, as part of that, I hope that, um, that we've learned the importance of growing our knowledge of these books and the Old Testament as well. That while we are the New Testament church, we are the New Testament church because of the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make sense. Without the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't make sense. And without Jesus, the Old Testament doesn't make sense because Jesus fulfilled every promise that God made of Him. Now this morning, our final minor prophet again is Malachi. And the feel of this book, this, this relationship that Malachi talks about, it's similar to um, a parent in their rebellious teenager who many of us have dealt with. I myself have been on one side of that. Not the parent yet, but it's the stereotypical... Um, you know, Father says, you know, after all the things that I've given to you and I've done for you, you continue to be rebellious, you continue to be disobedient and selfish. You don't do what I say, but when you do do what I say, you do it half-heartedly. And you do it out of spite or, or obligation rather than humble obedience and a heartfelt desire. It's this difficult relationship. It's tumultuous, if you will in which one party desires respect and obedience while the other just expects things handed to them. That's very similar to the direction of our society as well, isn't it? But God, through Malachi, expresses His weariness with His children in this constant, rebellious, disobedient attitude. And oftentimes this attitude, an obligatory, sometimes defiant attitude, is something that we may bring with us to our worship as well. And it's exactly the thing that God is frustrated with. The attitude that, alright, I've got to go to worship this morning because, well, I'm expected to. I don't want to go, but I need to be there. I have to be there. Or somebody's going to call me or send me a card saying, come back to Jesus. That's happened to us before I, in college. We went to a church and we were out a couple of weeks because we went home for Thanksgiving break and we got back and we had a postcard in our mailbox at Harding that said, come back to Jesus. We, didn't, we just went on vacation. We didn't leave Jesus. <laughs> but these are, these are things, this, this attitude of, I don't want to go, but I have to go, it's something that we've all experienced. I myself as a preacher has, have experienced this. When I get discouraged, I feel that way sometimes. I'm going to be honest. Be honest with yourself too. We've thought these thoughts. This is the, the mindset that sometimes our children will get. And it's a, it's a dangerous mindset. And it, it, I hope that this you can take something away from this. But it's a, a mindset of, my parents told me I have to go. 
I have to go to church this morning because my parents told me to. If I don't go to church with them, I can't go out to El Picante afterwards. <laughs> and so I have to eat peanut butter and jelly at home. Or maybe you're dating someone and your girlfriend goes to church and you have this mindset of, well, I have to go to church because my girlfriend wants me to go or my wife wants me to go, so I have to go. Now, I remember the one time where this was the case for me. I had stayed up late playing video games with friends in college probably till 3 in the morning, but this girl wanted me to go to church with her the next morning. <laughs> come on, come on, go, I've got a ride, we can go. So I went, and not only was it a great lesson that day and a great day of worship, um, but I got to hold that girl's hand on the way home. Now, that should have been my drive to go to church. She shouldn't have been the reason why I went to church. It shouldn't have been, well, if I want to date this girl, I've got to go to worship. It should have been, I need to be at worship because of all that God has blessed me with, all that I owe Him for what He's given to me, all that He deserves. He deserves my praise. He deserves my obedience because He's given me so much when I don't deserve it. By the way, that girl was Sarah, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> So this morning as we journey through the book of Malachi, I want us to reflect on the many ways in which we're just like the people of Malachi's time. How we're more focused on worldly things and passions and less focused on what God wants for us in this life. How we focus more on the President or Washington instead of the King, the High Priest, the Messiah, whom we owe everything to. To focus more on what's happening once this sermon is over, when our time of worship is over, rather than focusing on our worship and the one who has showered us with blessings. Now, a quick overview of the back and background on the book of Malachi. The last two weeks we've been looking at this, this, uh, this time frame of, of Zechariah and Haggai and their influence on the people as they began returning from Babylonian captivity and Persian captivity. The, the first uh, wave of exiles, if you will, began returning back to Jerusalem in 536 B.C. And again, after about 20 years of being back, the temple finally gets rebuilt. Now, several years later, another group of exiles returned from captivity under the leadership of the priest Ezra. Uh, he has a book. You should read it. It's pretty good. Uh, his role was to teach the Word of God to the people. As they returned from this terrible time in captivity of being slaves, of, of thinking that God had abandoned them, they're now returning back with a broken faith. And so Ezra was there to encourage them, to, to help them understand that God still has a plan for them. Then in 444 B.C., under the leadership of the eventual governor Nehemiah, a third group returns to Israel. Nehemiah's got a, got a book too. Also pretty good. Uh, but this third group comes back under his leadership, and the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah would be rebuilt. This, this sense of security for the people would be built back up. And so together with Ezra, Nehemiah helps lead the people to uh, what's considered a great revival of faith. But... But even though they had faith that God still loved them and still had a plan for them, the moral and spiritual decay was rampant. It is still very much present. They hadn't learned anything from the captivity and the punishment that God had dealt out to them. 
And that's where Malachi, the, the prophet, comes in. So Malachi comes in alongside, he's kind of a cohort with, uh, with Ezra, with Nehemiah. He's the prophet, the, Ezra's the priest, and Nehemiah's the king, if you will. He's technically the governor, but it's the same process. Now Malachi means my messenger. He is God's mouthpiece who speaks to... Um, who, who speaks of the messengers of God that will come and addresses the spiritual and moral decay of the people. And it was present um, then amongst all the people and the priests as well, just like it was before. And so this was an issue, this moral decay was going on, not just in the people, but also in the priesthood. And again, that's something that has been kind of a thread that has been quietly woven through these, these minor prophets. Now the way that Malachi teaches... I love the way Malachi teaches because this is how I tend to teach. I know it's definitely how Kip tends to teach. Um, but what Malachi does is he, he, uh, he makes a charge. Um, like in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he says, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer, regard, no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But this charge that he makes, he then uh, raises potential objections, what people would say about that. And then he rebukes them. He refutes those, those objections that would come up or, or the alternate arguments to what he's saying. Um, and this is a different way of teaching. We haven't seen this way of teaching throughout the Bible and it's something that a lot of Jewish teachers actually built on as they you know, progressed through the years and it's something that a lot of preachers uh, build on as well. There have been books taught about the, Mal the, was it the Mal Malachi method, I think is what it's called, something like that. But it's a, way, it's a way to convey a message while also addressing that there are concerns, there are you know, other thoughts that are out there, but address those, say, okay, I know you may have these thoughts, but here's why you shouldn't, or here's what's right, something like that. So, the book of Malachi, if you're taking notes, can be broken down into three sections. Number one, God's care is in the first five, book, uh, first five verses of the book, what we heard read uh, this morning uh, by Matt in our scripture reading. God says, I love you, and the rebellious teen being Israel responds, oh yeah, how do you love us? You don't love us. And God says, wait a minute, I chose you. You're the people out of everybody in the world that I chose to be my people. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, he said. You're my people. I picked you to bring forth the salvation of the world. What do you mean I don't love you? To which Israel replies, remember this rebellious team, Pfft, whatever. You don't love us. Then the next section is built off of this poor relationship and how the people have disrespected God. So verse 6 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 15, is God's complaint about His people. And God has a lot of complaints about His people that He lists out here in the book of Malachi, one of which we are going to focus our study on this morning. But God says through this section, you've disrespected me. And the big piece of this, the big piece of this that, that God um, speaks to is what He calls polluted um, sacrifices, polluted offerings. He says, you've dis disrespected me, you've offered up polluted offerings, your heart isn't in it, and the people respond, prove it. That's not us, we didn't do that. You can't, how can you say that? We gave you, we gave you the lamb, we gave you the goats. How, what have we done wrong? And it's this constant back and forth, just like a parent and a rebellious teen. So here are some of God's complaints in this book. First off, 
those polluted offerings. If you look uh, at uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through the end of the chapter, those are the polluted offerings uh, that are being brought before God. Animals that were lame, they were blind, they were sick, they were the, the, the weakest, they were, the, they were the, the worst of the worst of the flock. And this is what they were bringing to God as their sacrifice. They weren't bringing the best as the law prescribed, but the attitude behind this is that checkbox religion kind of stuff. That sheep looks too tasty. This lamb is going to make a lot of money for me, but that lamb over there, we'll call him Bill. Bill the lamb, he's got one eye, he limps, he's, got, he's missing fur, he's ugly, nobody likes him. That's what we're going to give to God instead of this prize lamb, just so that we can say we did it. So when God says, you haven't been offering me the things that I need, they say, well, I gave you Bill. And God says, I don't want Bill. I want that prized lamb. Sorry if there's any bills in here. But he said, I want that prized lamb. That's, that's your best. I want your best. And that's something that we can see in religion today, isn't it? Especially surrounding our worship. Because a sacrifice, this offering, is an act of worship by the people to God. God wants us, He desires for us to worship Him, but how we worship Him matters. But the thought process today is that, yes, God wants us to desire Him, or desire to worship Him, but it doesn't matter how we do it, so long as we call it worship, then we're doing what He told us to do. But that's not biblical. These polluted offerings, God says, uh, He actually says in chapter 1, verse 10, this is kind of funny, but sad at the same time, but chapter 1, verse 10, He basically says, I just wish someone would close the doors of the temple so that you would stop offering me this garbage. Leave me alone. I talked to Sarah last night. This is like God saying, I want to time out from these people. I need time. I need a break from my kids for a while because they are driving me crazy with this stuff. He wants nothing to do with their vain worship. He wants nothing to do with our vain worship. All right, Matthew, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 quotes the words of Isaiah. He says, "This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." The people were bringing their nothingness. They were bringing their scraps and they were offering that to God. And then God says, Is this what I am to you? You bring me these these worthless, disgusting sacrifices and you expect me to accept these things? To be happy with you? Couldn't this describe their whole life? Not just their sacrifices, but their life in general. That their lives were a polluted sacrifice being offered to God. Here, God, here's all I've got for you. It's half-hearted. It's not my best because I've got other things that I've got to give myself to. But this is what i got for you. Hope you like it. Here you go. And I think there's something to be learned there for us. A profitable teaching, if you will. Because I think we're guilty all too often of taking our polluted and broken lives and giving God what we want, not what He wants. 
And we say, here God, I hope you're happy with this. I know it's not what you expected or what you said you wanted, but here it is anyway. I've got other things to do, so this is all you get. It's a defiled and polluted offering, and we'll talk more about that in depth later. Now another complaint God has is the corrupted priesthood. They were leading people astray and teaching false doctrines. The ones, the ones that were supposed to be leading people to truth and the proper understanding and, and training of God, the things that God expects, they were corrupt to the core. A third complaint God has is with the marriages of His people. Families and marriages were a wreck. And that's what we're going to focus on here in a second. Injustice and oppression was another issue God had with all His people. Things that the prophets harped on over and over and over. How many times have we talked about injustice and oppression in this sermon series alone, just in the minor prophets? They didn't get it. They didn't listen. They didn't learn. It was still going on. Things that were taught and preached by the prophets only to have Israel continue to ignore the warnings, even when they were punished. They were sent into slavery because of the things that they were doing wrong. And they come back and they keep on doing it. God says they were robbing Him with their tithes and offerings and not giving Him what He was due. Again, a good summary of their life because they weren't giving themselves to Him wholly. What does Jesus say is the greatest and first command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is not what they were doing. They weren't offering to God themselves or their possessions with all that they had. Now finally, the third section here, starting in chapter 3, uh, verse 16, and going to the end of the book, uh, Malachi says that God is coming, the Messiah is coming, but also... Elijah is coming as well. Now, of course, because we have the New Testament, and we find this out there, that that is fulfilled in John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the Messiah. He's the one who had been promised time and time again. Jesus, the Messiah, had been promised time and time again throughout all of the prophets, throughout all of the Old Testament. And Malachi, of course, also will point to Jesus as well. So when the book of Malachi is over, that's it from God. That, that, that last verse, you know, you turn the page and it's the New Testament, but that page that you turn is 400 years of silence. 400 years of God needing a break from His people. They don't hear anything from God for 400 years. And those who remain faithful, they just have to wait, hoping that God will keep His promises, looking out for those promises, which we know today that He did. Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Son of God, born of a virgin, who grew up to be tempted just as we are, to live a perfect life, holy and blameless, offering a a path to eternity. The kingdom that God promised, Jesus brought it, He set it up, but the people were still defiant. They were still hard-hearted and didn't want the kingdom that Jesus brought, and they rejected Him, they despised Him, and they nailed Him to a cross. His own people, who He was promised to. We talked about in our Bible class this morning. He stood up in the temple and read the prophecy from Isaiah saying, I am the one that they said was coming. I am He. What I just said has been fulfilled because you heard me say it. And then He tells them, you're still doing the terrible things that your ancestors did before you. The reason you went into slavery. Elijah, Elisha, the prophets, the great prophets that came before me. They didn't go help the the widows because no one sent them. 
They didn't go help the lepers because no one sent them. Because all you cared about was yourself. And then they tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. And ultimately they would again kill him on the cross. But his death on the cross was not the end. God wasn't done. Our Lord was not done yet. Because after he was buried, on the third day, we know that he rose up from the tomb and now reigns at the right hand of God as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And how do we thank him? Do we offer up our broken, sinful lives as a living sacrifice to him? A, I hope this is enough attitude? Or do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? Let's focus now on the book of Malachi and some of, some of the, uh, these things that we've talked about thus far. Turn over to Malachi chapter 2. I, started, I read this verse earlier, chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going to look at this marriage problem they had. Now this was an issue that, that was uh, one of God's complaints within Israel, one of many. There were many complaints that he had. Um, but, but I want us to see that this is, you know, obviously this is an issue that Israel had at the time and it's definitely still an issue that we have today. But I want us to see the polluted lives. That's, that's what I want to draw, draw everybody into, this polluted sacrifice that God is talking about. This polluted life that's being offered up as a sacrifice. It's, it's kind of talked about here in these marriages. So this issue uh, was one of the things, this marriage issue was one of the things that polluted them as a people. They were thinking, again, so what? Who cares? What difference does it make? Is this an attitude that we have? As we sit here, week in and week out, singing songs, fellowshipping with one another in prayer and singing and, and the breaking of bread, listening to classes or sermons and thinking, well, that was great, but what difference does it make? How does that help me? I checked the box off. That's all I needed. That's my, my, my whole punch to get into heaven. I just got to punch that off every Sunday and I'm good to go. What difference does all of this make? What does, does God really care or pay attention to all of this? Does He care or pay attention to what I do in my personal life? What difference does it make? And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I have these thoughts as well. Even as a minister, yes, sometimes I have those thoughts. When I get discouraged, I think, what difference will this sermon make? It's not a healthy thing to think, but I think it sometimes. And part of the way that this attitude manifests itself in the lives of God's people was in their marriages. God told them, don't marry foreign wives. It was this command that He gave him, and he, and he had good reason for this. But the people ignored it. They disobeyed. And so they married idolatrous women who were coming into their families and corrupting the way things were supposed to be, changing the way God had planned things. But they were also divorcing their wives. Malachi chapter 2 has a lot to say about divorce. And you may remember a sermon that I preached several months ago on divorce, about um, uh, Christ's commands on, on marriage and divorce. And you, and you may remember that we came to Malachi. Again, this was something that was relevant to them, and it's something that's extremely relevant to us today. Maybe the attitudes that brought about the divorce in the first place and it's certainly one of the key things today. What difference does it make? I'm going to do what I want to do. What makes me feel good. What makes me happy. I'm going to disregard what God has to say about divorce and marriage. Because God just wants me to be happy. 
As long as I'm happy, God's happy. So what difference does it make? These are lies that are perpetrated by Satan through our culture. These are things our culture teaches. It's okay to get divorced. No one's going to be hurt from it. What difference does it make? You know, they'll go on, they'll, they'll live their lives, things will be just hunky-dory. But when we allow the world to influence our decisions on spiritual or scriptural things, then we lose our influence on the spiritual and scriptural things of the world. This attitude of, I'm going to disregard and go against what I promised to my spouse on our wedding day because what difference does it make? And God says it makes a difference. Look here at verse 13 of chapter 2. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God no longer regards or accepts the offering with favor because of how it's being offered up. The polluted and broken lives that they're offering. So when we bring our offering of worship before God, be it in praise, be it in, in song, in prayer, in money offerings, whatever, if we bring our lives in general before God, are we doing so with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? Or are we giving up scraps of those things? And then when we realize later that God isn't listening maybe, or, or God isn't blessing us, or we think these things, and we shed tears over this, why God, why not God, etc. Is our offering worthy of the sacrifice which purchased us? Is it all that we have to give? God, Jesus gave up His entire life. He was beaten and thrown on a cross and suffered for us. That's what He gave for us. And we sometimes just show up. Check the box. God's saying that He's not accepting or regarding these offerings anymore. It says, uh, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, Who? why does He not? Why doesn't He do this? He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Whew. At verse 14, I could do a whole marriage seminar, a whole sermon series just on verse 14 alone. There's a lot of stuff in that verse. The Lord was witness between you and your spouse. When we are married, the vows that we take are not just things that we say to our, our husband or our wife. These are, it's not just uh, a promise that we make before our friends and family, but you're also making this commitment, you're making this covenant and this promise in the eyes of God. God is present. He is witness to that covenant. And we need to understand this covenant idea. When we make a covenant to our spouse in this way, it's the same as God making a covenant with His people. When a husband and a wife are married, a covenant is made. The wife says, I'll be faithful to you. My heart, my body, and my mind, they belong to you. And the husband reciprocates those things and says, I'll provide for you. I'll comfort you. I'll protect you. I'll love you and I'll shelter you. I will take you and I'll put my covering over you and protect you. Isn't this what God said to Israel when He brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land? Who can take away the bride from God? Israel. 
Israel was supposed to be this bride to God. God made a covenant with them, saying, I'll provide for you, I'll comfort you, I'll protect you, I'll love you and shelter you, I'll take you and put my covering over you and protect you. But Israel was an unfaithful spouse. She sold herself off as a prostitute, if you will, to anyone or any other thing that offered something that they thought was better. Prosperity, wealth, idolatry, all of it's tied together. So God had to deal with that. But God, even though He had to deal with that, He continued to keep His covenant over and over and over again. He still said, I love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you because I have a plan for you. I'm going to bring something out of you that will change the world. That's what the whole book of Hosea was about. The very first minor prophet that we talked about in this series, about this adulterous relationship that Israel had with God. And this concept of faithfulness to a covenant, this is an example that God gave to us, God gave to the men of Israel on how they were to keep their covenants with their wives and vice versa. But the men didn't get it. The people didn't get it. They said, you know, God made a covenant with us and even though we've disobeyed, we've been punished time and time again, but He still loves us. He's still here with us. He's still still, uh, speaking to us. The men basically said, Eh, what difference does it make? This lovely lady over here has something better to offer me. Do you see the connection between the covenant of God and His people and the role that Jesus has over His bride, which is the church, as detailed in Ephesians chapter 5? It's to be, it's this, this covenant, this relationship is to, be, is to be mirrored in our marriages. And God says, this is why I'm not looking with favor upon your offerings. One of many reasons, but this reason in particular right this moment. And the people say, so what? Who cares? What difference does it make? What does God care if I put away my spouse and marry someone I think is better? It makes all the difference. Because now, as you, O Israel, try to offer your life as a living sacrifice, you yourself are a polluted offering because you haven't been faithful to your wife. You haven't kept the covenant that you made with her. You've been faithless. Listen to what God says next in verse 15 about this. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now the idea of of, uh, faithless, in some translations, actually have the word treacherous. And that's that's what a husband does. That's what a husband or a wife does when they break that covenant, covenant. When a wife basically says, my body is no longer yours, my heart belongs now to someone else. Or when the husband says, you know, I found something better, hit the road. I know, I know, I promise to protect you, I promise to provide for you and comfort you, but you're on your own now. Because I've found something better. And I don't want you anymore. That's treacherous. That's faithless. Because you're not keeping your commitment. You've deceived them. You're doing violence to them. It's just as relevant today as it was then, isn't it? God says, What do I want from you out of these marriages? He said, I want future generations of holy, righteous, obedient, and faithful 
people, not a generation of unrighteous, idolatrous, disobedient, and faithless people. I desire godly offspring, he says, ones who learn from the example of their parents who grow into faithful, godly people to do the things that God desires. And when we look to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, in the comparison between Jesus and the church, this is what God was desiring. He wants generation after generation of faithful ambassadors for His kingdom, learning from generation to generation what faith is and what a covenant is, what it means and what it looks like, how to keep that covenant and not to stray from it. Who Jesus is, who God is, all of these things need to be passed from generation to generation. And when you look at the timeline of history and the, the, and the, the spread of denominations that, that come out in the, in the early you know, 200, 300s, you start seeing rebellion. Rebellion in generations. And that, as that rebellion spreads, so do the, all the denominations and all the churches start popping up everywhere. But that's not what God intended. He wants godly children, offspring, inheritance. He wants generations upon generations of faithful people. But these men, these men have turned away their, their wives. They've married an idolatrous woman uh, from foreign countries and now God's people is a mess. It's just a wreck. Their lives are a wreck. And now they're presenting themselves to God saying, show us your favor. We rebuilt the temple. You wanted us to rebuild the temple. We rebuilt it, so fill it with your glory. Bring those promises that you promised us. You know, give us, give us what we deserve. <laughs> and God says, wait, what? Are you serious? You can't think that after the way that you've treated me, the way that you've treated yourself, the way you, you've treated your neighbors, your wives, you've disregarded everything I said, you've acted like a spoiled brat saying, what difference does it make? You can't possibly think that after all of that, I'm going to shower you with blessings. Have you learned nothing from the punishment that I have sent to you, that your years in captivity and slavery and in exile? What are you missing? Sometimes when I was talking to Caleb and I'm trying to teach him something or tell him something and he's just not getting it, it's like, what are you missing? What am I missing? What, what don't you get here? And I, I just, I see that in God here in Malachi. He's fed up. But is that attitude, this, this attitude of, 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 you know, thinking what difference does it make? And, and even though, you know, I, I checked the box, why am I not getting the things that God has promised me? If that's something that you find in your life, in, in your attitude, then, then this is hopefully something to kind of open your eyes and turn that around. This attitude that we live our life however we want to, and then on Sunday we get to check that box that says, go to church. Now God bless me. Thank you. I checked the box. And yes, I know I said go to church. It's something that I harp on. But people who have a checkbox Christianity mindset are the ones that are going to church. Because they're not the church. Because we're called to be the church. We are individually the church. And together, as living stones that are built together for the temple of God, we make up a larger temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. A living, glorious temple that is set in a living foundation of Jesus Christ. 
These aren't just fancy words that I write down and, and say to you. It's the truth. That's what the Bible tells us. We're never, it's never been about the building. It's never been about checking off the box. It's been about the sacrifice of your life that you are giving to God. We gather here each week not to check boxes. Teresa often checks boxes whether you're here or not. But, but, <laughs> but you're not checking a box. Hopefully you're not checking a box on your weekly to-do list. But we come here to bring an offering of praise, of worship, of prayer, etc. To honor God, to remember His Son's sacrifice, and to allow the truth of God's Word to transform our thinking, to change our life. Verse 16, and apparently this is a tricky section of Scripture uh, to translate into English because the translations have kind of a mixture of things. So I put two translations up here. Um, now, some translations, the first verse, uh, for the man uh, who, ha- who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Um, this, that's what the ESV reads. But the New American Standard reads, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, God of Israel. Either way, the meaning is very simple. God doesn't like divorce. Divorce goes against everything that God desires for His people. Period. They mean the exact same thing. Because it's a breaking of a covenant. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Again, that word faithless can also mean treacherous. Stop dealing treacherously. Do not be treacherous. Do not be faithless. God hates Divorce, because again, God understands covenant. God understands faithful, because God is faithful to His covenants. He's faithful to His promises. God expects us to not only keep our covenant with Him, but also to each other. Any promises that we make to each other, and especially to our spouses. Whenever you make a promise or a contract, you better keep it. God's people, especially God's people who should look at marriage through the lens of Scripture, the lens that points to the cross of Christ, we ought to hold the covenant of marriage in the highest regard in the world. When people are talking about marriage, God's people need to be the ones that are standing there saying, this is what marriage is. God hates divorce. Jesus gives uh, the only reason for divorce, and that's sexual immorality. But that's not what God desires. God still, even in cases of sexual immorality, God does not desire divorce. But He permits it if it can't be overcome. He longs for the reconciliation. God is a God of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God through Jesus, and He wants the same for us in our relationships and in our marriages. But we live in a world that says, eh, divorce happens. People fall out of love. It's okay. What difference does it make? I've pointed you to Scripture this morning that tells us it makes a difference. But in the world, there are statistics galore that show the truth found here in verse 16 that your garment is covered in violence. The statistics of, of, of uh, youth suicide rate amongst uh, families of divorced parents is much higher than the, divorce, or than the suicide rate of those from non-divorced parents. You want to talk about covering your garment with violence. There's one. The act of, of uh, divorce is treacherous. It is faithless. And statistics that show the impact the divorce has on children and also their children's children. 
The act of divorce impacts generation after generation. And that's why God said that He desires godly offspring. That generation after generation, they are being taught the things that they need to be taught. That they're growing up in homes that, that covenant, the covenant of marriage means something. That's what God desires. He desires faithfulness and not faithlessness. When we as God's people disregard our covenant of marriage, how much more damage do we cause to our influence as disciples, to the fellowship of believers who, who look to the covenant God made uh, to us through Christ, the relationship we as the church have with Jesus as the head, and we see faithful followers breaking a covenant made in the witness of God Himself. The garment is covered with violence, with shame, with wrong, with guilt. And God looks at that and sees not a worthy sacrifice, but a polluted one. So guard yourselves. Take heed of your spirit. Do not be faithless. Do not deal treacherously. This is, this is again, one of the, just one of the complaints that God had against His people. They're offering themselves as a polluted sacrifice to God. And I hope that we understand that even if we haven't dealt with our spouses in this way, if, if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, uh, and I hope you're not thinking this, but if you are, if you're thinking, well, I, I'm good, I've never done that. I, I haven't cheated on my wife. We're, we're still good. So, I've never dealt treacherously, or I've never dealt faithlessly, and I've never offered up a polluted sacrifice to God, because I didn't do that. I hope you're not thinking that, because if you are, I'm sorry, but you are wrong. Because Romans 3.23 clearly states that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Divorce, faithlessness, that's just one sin. Two sins, technically. But all sin is equal in the eyes of God. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have polluted ourselves with sin. So if you're going to take your life offering and go to God and say, God, look at my life. I hope you're happy with it. So please bless me because I've lived a good life. And God will say, wait, what? Are you serious? You've lived a... You've, you've lived a hang on, let me look. You've lived a good life. Okay. Look at all these things you've done. Look at all these things that you've said. You haven't lived a good life. The offering that you're bringing to me is polluted. And then we cry out, well, God, what, what hope do I have then? What hope do I have if you won't accept this? And that church is where the gospel comes in. Because Jesus came to the sin-polluted and dark world, and when we were trying to offer up polluted offerings to God, Jesus came and offered Himself instead on our behalf. An unpolluted, unblemished, perfect, and prized lamb. A holy sacrifice, a substitute offering to God. So now, now, if we take refuge in Jesus and we cover ourselves in His atoning blood through the waters of baptism, then, and only then, can we devote ourselves to God and offer ourselves up to God as a living sacrifice that is pleasing in His eyes. That's Romans 12, verses 1-2. through 2. Now isn't that good news? The fact that we all live terrible, polluted lives. We all have sin-filled lives. No matter how hard we try, we cannot avoid it. No one can live a perfect life as Jesus did. It's not possible. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is only Christ who can make our offering clean. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, 
if you hide yourself in Christ and you repent of those sins and humbly seek, seek God through Jesus, then Jesus becomes your propitiation, your atoning sacrifice. And then, then you can offer your life up as an offering, of God, uh, offering to God and He is pleased by it. But not because your life and your offering is worth anything by itself. Because your life is polluted by sin. And I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying that, but your life and your offering is worthless to God unless you are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus Himself offered the sacrifice to God. And so now our offering has been covered over with His blood. This is disgusting, but I'm going to tell you this. I watched a video on Facebook last week of a guy detailing what they do in the meat, meat department at, at department store, at uh, box stores, or not box stores, like Walmart or something like that. When meat goes past their expiration date, it stinks, right? It, it, it turns brown. It's disgusting. And so what some of these places do is they'll take the meat and they'll get some of the blood from the fresh cut meat and they'll dip it in the blood and they'll make it pink again. And then they'll rewrap it and then they'll put a new expiration date on it. Even though the meat is disgusting and polluted and full of bacteria, as the tests have shown, it's been covered over with blood to look fresh again. And that's what we are to Jesus, or to God. I know it's disgusting. We are, not, we are stinky chunks of meat covered in blood. That's true! I want to make a t-shirt. I'm a stinky piece of meat covered in, in Christ's blood. That's going to be a new bumper sticker slogan right there. That's our, that's our theme of the year. Stinky pieces of meat covered in blood. But even though we've been covered in blood, even though our offering, our life sacrifice now, is covered in His blood, we still have to offer it. Just because Christ has covered over us with blood doesn't mean that we're like, oh, okay, well, cool. I can just go about my life now. I've got Christ's blood on me. I'm the stinky piece of meat just walking through the street. I'm happy now. We still have to offer ourselves to God. And we have to do so with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and with all our strength. Why? Why not? Why shouldn't we be doing this when we see the promises and the blessings that are awaiting us because of Christ? And when we look at our lives through the lens of Jesus, why would we, not want, why would we want to do anything else? Why would we not want to be here? Why would we not want to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice or why would we be okay with sitting here checking a box thinking, what difference does it make? One final section of Malachi and we'll close this morning. Turn over to chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And when we look at the world today, <clears throat> we may have a hard time seeing any distinction from righteous and unrighteousness. We see these people in the world who follow the teachings of the world, those who sleep around, they, they divorce and remarry whoever they feel like. We have same-sex marriages or otherwise. We, we see them and, we, and it may be easy to think, well, they, they look happy. They look like they're doing pretty good for themselves. They seem prosperous. I mean, Hollywood is, is the poster child for this lie. I mean, when you look at the Oscars and, and just the, the rampant... Um, don't even get me started on that. But Malachi closes out by talking about the fact that, that we'll see the difference and that a distinction is coming. We will see a distinction soon. God's going to show it. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. 
the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance, or the, the book of life, we, we, we read about in, in uh, Revelation. The, the book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall be seen, or you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who dis- does not serve Him. You shall see the distinction, God says. There will be a day of judgment in which distinctions will be made. Now on this side of the cross, it should be easy to see, shouldn't it? To see what a great, gracious, and merciful God that we have who sent His only begotten Son to be the sacrifice for us so that we can offer up our lives as a living sacrifice And because of that, it should be easy for us to fear the Lord and humbly serve Him because we know that, we understand that. Because we can can repent of our sins. We can be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and be raised up to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord because He's coming back and a distinction will be made. Christ needs to be your life. And if you make Christ your life, taking refuge in Him, then His death, His sacrifice, it covers over our polluted one. And without Jesus, you're on your own. You're going to have to offer up that sacrifice to God, and it's going to be polluted, and it's not going to be covered in blood. Look at what we learned today from Malachi about polluted sacrifices and whether or not God accepts them. Without Jesus, without Jesus Christ to cover over you, good luck. It's not a position that I want anyone to be in. So this morning, if we can assist you in any way, whether it be to to be baptized into Christ, if you need prayer for anything, sickness, prayer for praise, mourning, repentance, whatever you need, if we can help you at all, please come while we stand and sing.